0: Don't look now. Don't look now. The fire's well, welcome to Don't Look Now, the podcast with your hosts, Jenny McDonald and Will Hageman coming to you every week with our stories of the weird, not so weird, historical, not so historical, factual, maybe not so factual. I don't know. <laughs> Good things to discuss. As always, I'm in the dark. Jenny is a keeper of our topic. So Jenny, what lead us off? What are we what are we talking about?
1: Uh well, <laughs> in our <laughs> off-radio conversation, it's similar yep. oddly enough. All right. Um, the, the nature of good and evil.
0: No, oh, there we go. Yeah, fun conversations about this. Yeah, you know.
1: Yeah, um, specifically in literature. Okay. In a particular kind of literature from Scotland.
0: Good and evil in literature in Scotland. Outside of Macbeth, I don't know what we're talking about. So yeah.
1: Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, but I would consider that Globe Theatre style, so I'm going with London. Let's talk about a Scottish poet who was a novelist and a travel writer best known for his work, Treasure Island.
0: Robert Louis Stevenson.
1: Yes. I know nothing
0: about other than the fact that he wrote Treasure Island, so this will be interesting. I had no idea it was Scottish, so...
1: What? Yeah, no, he's he's Scottish, uh, well-loved, and... Treasure Island is based off of people that he knew. I could do a whole thing on Treasure Island. I'm not gonna go there. <laughs> Treasure Island is a wonderful work of art. But today I want to talk about another piece of literature that he wrote. Okay. The strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde.
0: Ah, I didn't know he did that actually.
1: Oh yes. Yes. Nice.
0: Yeah. Okay. I, I am I am under informed. I you know, I mean I definitely know know of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but I had no idea that was a Robert Louis Stevenson thing. So cool.
1: Yep. So for those of us that don't know as well, it's a short novel, um, a novella. And the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is the narrative about the complexities of science and the duplicity of human nature. So Dr. Jekyll is this kind, well-respected, intelligent scientist who kind of Medals with science as they do in this era of writing. Yep. Um, and he decides that he wants to bring out his second nature. So he does this through transformation and he turns into Mr. Hyde, who's his evil alter ego, who doesn't repent for anything evil and shitty that he does. And he accepts zero responsibility for any of his crimes. So Jekyll attempts to control his alter ego for a while And initially, Jekyll has all the power because he has all the control. But very much like the Incredible Hulk, over time, the Hulk starts to figure out how to take over that control, right? Okay. So towards the end of the novel, um, Hyde has taken over, and this results in people getting murdered. Yeah. So the story starts with Mr. Utterson and Enfield taking a walk. And during their walk, they see a strange and, like, creepy building. Um, And it happens to be Mr. Utterson's friend's house, Dr. Jekyll. And when he sees this building, Enfield tells this tale of Mr. Hyde, the occupant of the house. He tells Utterson about how Hyde trampled on a young girl's legs and had no remorse about his evil actions. And at this point, Mr. Utterson becomes totally... Obsessed with this story. Okay. He's like, okay. I think I said it was the same house. It's attached to his friend's house. Okay. So it's like in, in Scotland, it's like a, a yeah, semi- like a row attached. house kind of thing. Yeah. Like a row house kind of thing. So he becomes obsessed and he decides he wants to meet Mr. Hyde because how could someone so terrible live next door to his good friend, Mr. Dr. Jekyll. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So he decides he's going to like hang around and keep an eye on things. So he does. And finally He meets the guy and he's really just shocked by this guy. He feels really like concerned (laughs) when he first talks to him and he goes to warn his good friend, Dr. Jekyll, but his butler, Mr. Poole says, he's not really here. Um, And Dr. Jekyll has told us that if Mr. Hyde wants to come and go, he can just come and go as he pleases. We can't stop him. So a couple weeks later, Utterson sees Dr. Jekyll at a friend's dinner party and he's like hey what's going on with your will like I think that's a super sketchy thing to ask someone just at a
0: dinner (laughs) party by the way you just drop that into conversation at a party so
1: right like how do you how does that just fall into conversation naturally Um, so it turns out that Jekyll has left his entire will to Mr. Hyde all of his belongings and Utterson's kind of like uh (laughs) <laughs> that seems seems a little suspicious buddy maybe don't do that and jekyll's like dude it's fine everything's under control so like a year later uh, a local man who's pretty well respected by the name of Carew is brutally murdered by mr hyde and the murder weapon is dr jekyll's walking cane so an eyewitness who's under severe distress is like you wouldn't believe it. It was like an animal attacked this person. Right. Yeah. And so Utterson's just like, Oh no, he's a bad man. We should do something. And at this point, Dr. Jekyll gets really sick and he tells everybody around him that he has sent Mr. Hyde away and the police can't find Mr. Hyde. And slowly Dr. Jekyll becomes happier and more sociable and like, willing to see people again. It just takes a while. And then out of the blue, he kind of falls into this deep depression and Utterson's like, Hey bud, what's going on? And maybe we should take you to a doctor. But this doctor friend is on his deathbed and he doesn't want to talk about anybody else. Like just leave me to die. And here's this letter I've written for you. Wait until I'm dead. And then you can open it.
0: <laughs> suspicious. Not suspicious at all. Yeah
1: right So one evening Jekyll's servant comes to the utter to Utterson's house and says, "Can you can you come to the house? some sketchy stuff's going on And Utterson's like, sure so he goes because this is his friend and he listens to the locked laboratory door where he can hear strange noises
0: mm-hmm.
1: And the butler is like, yeah, the lab's been locked for several days and the person inside keeps complaining that, You know, the chemicals that that we have aren't pure. All right. Sounds like a heroin dealer, Jesus. (laughs) So Utterson's like, we we need to help Dr. Jekyll because obviously he's in trouble. So he and the butler break down the laboratory door. And on the floor, there's a small deformed person wearing Jekyll's clothes and he's twitching and holding a vial. And on the desk, there's a copy of Jekyll's will with Hyde's name crossed out and Utterson's written in. And there's also this weird confession. And so Utterson's like, what? So he reads the confession. He also reads the letter from the doctor that wrote this deathbed note. So putting two and two Mm -hmm. together, here's what we find. Utterson learns that Dr. Jekyll is Mr. Hyde. And in the letter left from Dr. Jekyll, it's the statement of all of his dark experiments and how Hyde becomes too controlling And how it led him to murder. All righty. This is the very short version. Yep. yep. Super synopsis version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So now we know the story. We know the basics. Yep. Did you know that it's based on a true story? No. Makes it even better, right? Nice.
0: Yeah, no, that I had not heard at all.
1: So it is a short story that was basically ripped from the headlines in Edinburgh. So here's the true story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. All right. Deacon William Brodie lived from 1741 to 1788, and he was a pillar of Edinburgh society. He was a successful cabinet maker and a deacon of the Guild of Rights and Masons, and an Edinburgh city councillor. He's described as being bourgeoisie and respectable, and he's the sort of person to whom the criminal classes should look up to.
0: <laughs> oh, the old criminal classes!
1: If that wasn't some classes bullshit right there, <laughs>
0: <laughs> you could tell the criminal classes by their brow. You know, yeah, he's, the shape of their head gave it away that they were the criminal class. That was, you know, so he's stuff back then.
1: He's fancy rich. Yeah, he's got a good family history, but he also has a tremendous gambling habit, and he's like ridiculous about it and not only does he have this massive gambling habit but he also has a little bit of philandering ways with the ladies because he has two well-known mistresses and five illegitimate children
0: (laughs) so he's keeping busy
1: yeah you know he's repopulating it's fine yeah yeah So William Brody's father had been a cabinet maker before him, and he served as an apprentice in his father's workshop, and his work was some of the best in Edinburgh. He grows up to become a supplier of furniture to the rich and famous, um, which gives him access to customers' homes and businesses for legitimate reasons, (laughs) a lot of times, to install furniture or to fit locks. (laughs) So he makes a lot of copies of keys to people's houses. Yeah. Um, But as we have learned from our Burke and Hare episode, that Edinburgh has kind of a dark side during this period of time. It's got a lot of crime and vice and all sorts of just insanity. And he's well-established in this community. So he frequented the drinking and gambling dens, which... I'm not sure how clean their water was, so it probably was pretty super common for most people to drink. Just, you know. And by 1768, he had serious gambling debts to the kind of people you don't really want to owe money to. Yeah. You know, the thugs. And his lifestyle is just, like, increasingly expensive in a million ways. Not only just because of his many many okay. illegitimate children who by the way the mistresses and the kiddos don't know that the others exist right. yep. but he also has a legitimate family in the mix
0: okay all right
1: right so he turns to crime as a means to resolve his problems so in 19 or 1917 68 he takes impressions of the keys to a bank in the city he robs a bank
0: nice. in the middle of the city <laughs>
1: Um, It's a nighttime robbery and he gets about 800 pounds from it, which is a massive amount of time in the 1700s. Yeah. And then he recruits an English locksmith by the name of George Smith. And between the two of them, they launch a pretty successful crime wave across the city and they ended up stealing Edinburgh university's silver mace. (laughs) So these little shits just get their, their little crime spree started but they're not super like notorious yet mm-hmm. it's about a decade later when his crime spree really hits the ground running dude's already mm-hmm. already robbed a bank but that's mm-hmm. not where he really hits the ground running
0: all right so he's still legit in everyone else's eyes and doing this behind the scenes so okay
1: yeah because what happens is in 1782 his father dies and he inherits all of his father's wealth. Okay. Which is great because he's left about 10,000 pounds, which is like
0: Hello, a lot.
1: And four houses and the business. Nice. So he's not hurting. But his expenses are getting more and more expensive because kids be expensive. He'd also been a member of the Cape, which is the most expensive exclusive club in edinburgh um but over time he started to lean more and more towards a disreputable tavern in the flesh market close which is just like an alley and a dark dingy alley (laughs) Um, and this place was pretty notorious for late night drinking gambling cards and dice he also enjoyed cockfighting why not (laughs) um but he also wanted to supplement his income. So when he wasn't hitting the money with his gambling, he wanted to have other ways. So summer of 18 or 1786, a new person shows up. This is, mm, no, no, that's not what happened. It's summer of 1886. He and George Smith start to really kick things off. Okay. So they start to target businesses and private homes in old town And then towards the end of that year, they robbed a goldsmiths and a tobaccoists. And then on Christmas Eve, they have a major haul from the Bruce Brothers, which is like a jewelry store. Okay. And they make off with a bunch of watches, rings, and lockets. And then before long, you know, they can't stop bragging about this kind of (laughs) shit down at the, the pub. So before long, they attract a couple of other criminals by the name of John Brown and Andrew Ainsley. And the four of them formed a little bandit brigade. And by the summer of 1787, they had gone as far as Leith, which is about 45 minutes away from Edinburgh. And they stole tea, which was an extremely valuable commodity at that time. Okay. What the hell were they doing with tea? (laughs)
0: fencing it's obviously
1: obviously okay so they're becoming more and more ambitious and a little bit more audacious and in late 1780 something they raid his majesty's excise office in Chessel court which is off of the cannon gate so brody is supposed to be acting as a lookout but he falls asleep <laughs> As a result, authorities have been alerted to this robbery in progress, and they almost capture the entire gang red-handed. So Brody and two of them escaped, but Ainsley's captured. And possibly for the first time, so like not only did they rob something, but what they think is the first time, they also were armed with pistols, which was pretty unusual at the time. Okay. So when they ran all that they had gotten from this robbery was 16 pounds. And it was such a fiasco that they all fell out and wanted nothing to do with each other. Okay. And one of the guys, John Brown sees that there's a reward for 150 pounds being offered for information about a previous robbery. So he's like, I'm gonna go get my 150 bucks. It's better than the 16 pounds that we lost. So he goes to the sheriff's clerk to name Ainsley and Smith as the culprits. And they're arrested. And Brody is like, oh, no, I'm not going down like this. So he hops in a stagecoach, gets to London, hops on a ship to Holland, and then he hides. (laughs) But he can't hide too long. So he's basically trying to hide out until he can catch a ship to America. He's okay. just fleeing, right?
0: Yeah.
1: But they catch up with him in Holland and discover him in an inn, Harry Potter style,
0: yeah. in a cupboard. Nice.
1: Under the stairs. <laughs> so Ainsley quickly turns King's evidence to avoid the gallows. Smith and Brown are arrested, and Deacon Brody arrives back in Edinburgh in chains. So his trial begins the 27th of August in 1788. And he's really convicted on circumstantial evidence. Um, So he's basically convicted on the word of the other gang members. Yeah. And because they found some incriminating items, including uh, duplicate keys, a disguise and pistols, not necessarily the pistols involved in the robbery, but just pistols. pistols. So he was hanged October 1st, 1788 at Edinburgh's toll booth, which is... A building in the middle of the high street near Saint Giles Cathedral. Um, it's thought there were probably forty thousand people in attendance. I swear to God, this is all people like to do during this period of time: is <laughs> go to watch hanging. good hanging, all right. And a little bit of irony for those of you that enjoy that kind of thing: Brody was hanged from a gibbet that he himself had designed <laughs> recently. Nice. And he proudly boasted to the crowd that the gallows upon which he was about to die was the most efficient kind in its existence. <laughs> so, you know, a little, little, bit, a little bit uh, yeah. egotistical there. He ends up buried in an unmarked grave at the parish church in Buclique. Um, Not close to this area at all. Uh, yep. What would have been closer would have been the Greyfriars Kirk, but you know, whatever. At least, maybe. So, of course, there's rumors that he cheated the noose, that he had worn a steel collar to the scaffold since he designed it. He knew its weaknesses, and that he was quickly cut down, survived, and disappeared. There's reports of him being seen alive and well in Paris, and then again in the U.S. (laughs) Probably not. So let's go down the little rabbit hole.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, if the timing had overlapped better, it would have been funny if you got dug up by the resurrection men, but, you know.
1: I know. I actually looked and looked to see if there was a connection during the time that they were there, because it seems like there should be, right? Yeah. There's not. Um, So the period of time that the story is from is the Scottish Enlightenment era. So the Scottish Enlightenment began mid-18th century and continued through from... So early 1700s to like early 1900s, basically it's a huge period of time. Okay. And it basically is a marked paradigm shift that takes away. It's like the age of reasoning basically. So they yeah. went from believing hundred percent in religion and started to really, really believe in reason. Um, yeah. So all sorts of areas of life were affected by this art, politics, science, medicine, engineering, Um, And it was all based on philosophy.
0: That's where you get the Scottish engineer trope from and everything. You got to.
1: Yeah. Scotland basically started science. I just want y'all to understand (laughs) that. Um, Geology, everything. They'll tell you it started in Scotland and not just Scottish pride. They'll tell you that. Everybody will. So the three central ideas of enlightenment. The first one is reason. So the most important and original idea was that the methods of natural science could be used to examine and understand all aspects of life, um, and everything then could be submitted to rationalism. And then the scientific method. So the scientific method was capable of discovering the laws of human society as well as nature. And then the third was progress. So the goal of the enlightenment thinkers was to create better societies and better people by getting rid of outmoded traditions and embracing this rationalism. Okay. So it was an attempt to, you know, use science, rational thinking and common sense and tangible things to form a stronger society. I think we still, we still struggle with this. Yeah. How many years later, right? And then I just threw in some time frame references. So other things happening during this time. In 1786, Robert Burns, who is a very famous poet in Scotland, yeah. published poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect, which was a collection of verses that were regarded as classics. Um, another is that in 1788 and this is actually pretty big pretty big deal 1788 um was the death of charles edward stewart who's known as bonnie prince charlie okay um, he's well known for his role in the 1745 rising uh his defeat at culloden and basically ending the Stuart cause in scotland um tried to keep the french from invading basically he's just a big big old failure um everything to yeah. do with him is a hot damn mess yep yeah and yeah,
0: then I, oh go ahead
1: no i was gonna say the last thing just timing wise just per- perspective yeah. 1776 was the year of the american revolution
0: yep and i was thinking right around this time this is when uh james watt comes up with the the reasonable steam engine and everything in scotland too mm-hmm. so this is kind of Right at the beginning of the beginning of the, you know, industrial revolution and steam power being reasonable and all that kind of stuff. So.
1: Exactly. That's exactly what's going on. So yeah, that is the, the story of the Jekyll and Hyde. No, that's cool.
0: I didn't know anything about that. So. I was, I was
1: pretty stoked when I found that article explaining what had happened. So.
0: Yeah, no, my, my, my Edinburgh crime knowledge is limited to Burke and Hare. So <laughs> that was.
1: I keep thinking I'm going to run out of things about Scotland that interest me. And then I somehow end up on a five page tangent and I'm like, oh no, dear.
0: Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, thanks. Thanks for that. That's yeah, an interesting, interesting story. So now I need to go actually read dr jekyll and mr hyde sometime so
1: yeah it's not long it's a shorty
0: yeah just need to do it treasure island is great so i'm sure sure jekyll and hyde is good as well so
1: yeah it's really cool too in edinburgh you can go to the places that robert louis stevenson like lived Mm -hmm. where he wrote his novels uh who and you can see like the places that he went that inspired things and it's absolutely crazy to go to Europe anyway. Yeah. I always talk about like the layers of history because you walk into a place that has been continuously occupied for the last written history period of time yeah. and sometime continually occupied by the same families in the same homes. So yep. in, like Germany, for instance, it's not uncommon for a home with a family in it to have been occupied for a few hundred years by that family. Yep. It's just crazy to me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uncle Robert. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We live here still. He's still. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. you want to see his bed frame. I have that still.
0: Yeah. No, that's interesting. Yeah. There's just not that much history here. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah.
1: Our history is very shallow still.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, there's It's not that many generations back that, yeah, all of our general towns and everything in this area were founded. So, you know.
1: Right. And we tend to leave our houses fairly, yep. brief, you know,
0: quickly. Yep. Yeah. We also make them more shittily so they don't tend to stand up that long. <laughs> they get you know, bulldozed and something else gets made. That's, you know.
1: Yeah. When we stopped having the Freemasons make all of our homes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When we start making them, stop making them out of rock. Then we kind of, you know, haven't really built them the same way, but yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, cool. Cool. Well, thank you for that. Um, Again. Thanks for listening this week and as always, you know, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about our podcast and uh, we will catch you all next week. Bye. Bye folks.